The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Here at the Jerusalem Channel, we work hard to keep you informed and up to date on prophetic end time events in the Holy Land. But we also see so many great humanitarian needs. And that's why your support is helping to keep this ministry lifting up the name of the Lord in the Middle East. One of our most recent projects was to donate and dedicate a fully equipped ambulance to Israel's National Volunteer Rescue Service. The ambulance is available to assist everyone, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and yes, even tourists who might need medical assistance. So thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel by your gifts through our website or through our ministry addresses in the USA and the United Kingdom. Please help us to be a blessing to all the people of the Holy Land. The Gospels document how Jesus healed countless numbers of men, women, and children, and it's intriguing to wonder what happened to all of the people whose lives were touched or transformed by the astounding ministry of the Son of God. Let's follow up and explore their reactions and consider how we might have reacted if we'd lived in the time of Jesus. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. 2,000 years ago, God sent His Son Jesus into our world, into this very land of Israel to bring humanity out of ignorance and sin. He walked among us as a man, but doing and speaking the very words of God. He was fully man and fully God. Jesus was instantly recognized from His infancy by those who were truly godly. In fact, as we read the Gospels, we can see that a God-fearing person was able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to recognize the validity of the claims of Yeshua, Jesus. As Luke chapter 2 tells us, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. How it was revealed, we don't know, perhaps a dream or a vision. But it was revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so he was spirit-led into the temple at that moment when the parents brought in the child Jesus, according to the custom of the law in the Torah. So Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Holding the child, he said, He's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Amen. Right from his conception, the Gospels established that the Savior was sent by God, but Jesus really only began to attract the attention of the crowds at his adult baptism by John. And we have the gospel journalists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to thank 
for documenting the many signs and wonders that confirmed Jesus really was who he said he was. The messianic miracles confirmed that he was the very son of God. And I'm always curious about those who were miraculously healed and delivered from demons. Did they become ardent followers of Yeshua? Did they go about preaching and witnessing what the Lord had done in their lives? Well, many did. In the Gospels, you'll find a wide range of results, such as the faithful follower, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. She followed him to the end. The demon-possessed man who was healed wanted also to follow Jesus, but the Lord told him to go home and share his testimony with his family and friends. On the other hand, others seem quite unappreciative, to say the least, such as the nine lepers who didn't return to thank Jesus for their unprecedented healings. Only one leper of the ten who were healed, a Samaritan, returned to give thanks to Jesus. And then there's the disturbing incident of the healing of a man in John chapter 5 at the Bethesda pool, where there were multitudes of invalids. One man had been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his mat and walked. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the religious authorities were indignant. They said, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for this man to pick up his bed. But the former invalid answered, the man who healed me told me to do it. They asked, who told you to take up your bed and walk? And the former invalid didn't know who he was. But later, Jesus found him in the temple, and he warmed him. He said, see, you are well, so sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. But strangely, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So what do we do when Jesus has healed us? Do we give public glory to him? It's hard to imagine betraying him for such an act of mercy. And that's something to think about. So here in John chapter 5 is an example of a cripple who had been an invalid for 38 years. He was instantly and completely healed. But he goes and reports Jesus' identity to the religious leaders. And in the eyes of the Pharisees of that day, Jesus had not only violated the Sabbath, but he'd also performed this miracle during a high holy day. The case against Jesus was being built, and the healed cripple's testimony contributed against him, whether it was intentional or not. And into this religious atmosphere, Jesus made one of the most amazing statements in the Gospels. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's the essence of the Gospel. The reason that Jesus came into the world, to save sinners. He didn't come to save the self-righteous because the Bible clearly teaches that there is none, not one, who's righteous by God's standards. No. Jesus came to save those who are well aware that we are infected with a terminal case of a disease called sin. But those who are hungry, thirsty, sinners, we know that we're sinners and that only Jesus can save us. And so, therefore, we need the Savior. Once St. Augustine had prayed, 
Lord, save me from that wicked man myself. In a moment of self-realization, the apostle Peter has said to Jesus, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And the apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He stated the essence of the gospel by saying that it's a faithful statement and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus the Messiah came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, Paul said, foremost. While the religious leaders were threatened by the authority of Jesus, you see, Jesus used an expression of speech. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, but I say unto you, when the Lord said, you have heard that it was said of them of old, he meant the religion you now have is the oral tradition of the rabbis, not the written word of God. And that's so very important to comprehend. Jesus was correcting the religious leaders of his day, and he claimed the authority of God. It's the spirit of the law that was the Lord's priority, not the letter of the law. He charged that the rabbinic additions and traditions, their embellishments, their interpretations and so forth, have brought the people into religious bondage. A reformation was needed. The Messiah said the leader's standards and attitude were way too low. They were only concerned with external matters, but Jesus said that if there was murder or lust in your heart, you're condemned and you need a savior because God looks upon the internals. He looks upon the heart. As one theologian has put it, Jesus didn't come to set aside the law of God, not at all. He came to strip all the rabbinic barnacles from off the law of God, to make it bare and pure as it was when God gave it. But oh, the backlash of preaching such truth. Gospels record no less than four plots to kill Jesus during his ministry, and truth tellers always had their detractors. Another confrontation was recorded in John chapter 10. At that time, it was the Feast of Dedication, what we call today Hanukkah, and it took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. Various ringleaders gathered around him and asked, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And then he said, I and the Father are one. And at that, they picked up stones again to stone him. But Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you trying to stone me? And they answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, make yourself into God. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands because it wasn't his time to offer up his life. 
Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And those sheep who could recognize his voice believed in him. The sinners, those destined for salvation, not the self-righteous, were able to recognize him. And that's my point today. What about you? You see, truth has a certain sound to it. Are you one of his sheep who can plainly hear the truth in his words? Or are you living in the deception of self-righteousness that you have no need of the Savior? John 20, 31, one of my favorite verses, implores us. It says, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Amen. Well, in the Gospels, they're so truthful because there's such a diverse catalog of people healed and delivered from years of torment, such as the demented little boy who would throw himself in the fire until Jesus cast out the demon from him. There's the life of a despised tax collector named Zacchaeus, who was enthusiastically redeemed after being singled out in the crowd. And speaking of crowds, think of the many thousands who were fed with the miraculous loaves and fishes. Then there's the 12-year-old girl raised from the dead and many others who were raised from the dead. Miracles, healing, signs and wonders. How can the world deny the truth of these messianic miracles? In chapter 12 of Matthew, yet the religious leaders completely twisted the reality of Jesus' claims because his claims simply weren't politically correct. And his profile as the suffering servant didn't fit the narrative of their expectations at that time. But in spite of the threats of the religious leaders, I want you to see that the ordinary people, the common sinners of Judea, they pursued Jesus as they still do today. It's always the case that God doesn't call the worldly wise. He doesn't call the self-righteous. Not many mighty, not many of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God, in his wisdom, has chosen the weak things of the world, even women, to shame the strong. The common people ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And his simple answer was, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent, referring to himself. Jesus offered them the same choice that he offers us today. You can hear his words and read this Bible and yet still not believe in him and still not trust in him for eternal life. Or we can look upon the Son of God by faith and believe in him and receive eternal life and be raised up on the last day. But in John chapter 6, there was a tragic turning point for many of them. The Bible honestly records that despite all the unprecedented signs and wonders in the ministry of Jesus, when many of his disciples heard his teachings, they turned back and they no longer wanted to walk with him. So Jesus said to his 12 innermost circle, his disciples, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, God bless him, spoke up and answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's the right response. Lord Jesus, Yeshua, I can honestly say that throughout the history of the world, only you have the words of eternal life. All other so-called holy men have fallen short of the mark. Well, what a tragic response to turn their backs on Jesus. Perhaps they were fearful of pleasing the religious rulers. The rejection of Jesus by some of his former disciples demonstrates the power that sin has over fallen mankind. In offering redemption from sin, Jesus found some, thankfully, who accepted God's only plan of salvation. But the Son of God also experienced the anger and hostility of a great number who turned their backs on him. The more Jesus revealed the love of God in his kingdom, the more the hearts of many seemed to be hardened. They wanted to kill him for exposing the sin and hatred in their own hearts. Just as today in many of the traditional churches, prominent among the attackers are people who pose as righteous and religious, but they hate true preachers of righteousness. And because he was a devout Jew, Jesus observed the Torah requirement about going up to Jerusalem for the religious and historical feast. Yet his very presence in the holy city during the feasts at Passover provoked the national leaders to plot his trial and crucifixion. He came to his own and his own, the religious leaders anyway, didn't receive him. The signs and wonders and the teaching implored the people to simply believe what the apostle Peter confessed. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Well, the question remains today. How would you and I have reacted if we were there amongst the multitudes in Israel and if we had heard Jesus' teaching? Can we be so sure that we would have believed? This requires wisdom from above. In Daniel 12.3 comes to my mind. It says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. The Bible teaches that we're all born in sin, and each one of us has no inherent power within ourselves to break out of this lifetime curse of sin. This reality prompted a very spiritual man named Nicodemus to approach Jesus by night with a question of how he or anybody else can experience eternal life and be restored with God. And Jesus explained to Nicodemus that salvation is a supernatural heavenly miracle. It's like a birth. It's a recreation and nobody can recreate himself. Nicodemus puzzled over how this can happen. And Jesus explained that the Holy Spirit comes and goes as he wills. It's not at our discretion, it's at God's discretion. A sinner can't make a decision for Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one actually who draws us to the Messiah and helps us to make that decision. John chapter 637 gives us insight into this process of redemption. Jesus explained, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father knows the sheep. 
The Father has chosen the sheep. The Father will give the sheep to me in his own time, and they will come to me. And the one who comes to me, Jesus said, I will not reject because I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what does all this mean for you and me? How does this process of believing work? God is so sovereign in everything, and there's nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves. And that's the good news. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can do that for us. Jesus has explained that every person is born into sin and Satan has dominion over our lives until we're willing to submit to the Lord. And that's why those turncoats, those spiritually weak followers of Jesus, turn their backs on him and continue to follow the traditions of men rather than enjoying a personal relationship with the Lord and rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit. A sinner's only responsibility, therefore, is simply to repent and believe that the sovereign purpose of God will be a complete restoration and healing of his lost soul when he trusts in Jesus. Otherwise, we'll die in our sins if we refuse to believe in the Lord. Jesus said solemnly in John 8:24, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. You see, today the temptation is to seek easy answers through the vain philosophies of mankind. That's why self-improvement books are so popular and why a lot of church pulpits proclaim good feelings and self-affirmation rather than telling the unvarnished truth about our sinful condition and our desperate need of the Savior. The Apostle Paul warned the churches in his letter to the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Messiah. What Paul is reminding us is that Jesus speaks with the authority of God. And that's what true Bible faith is all about. So let's not allow any worldly philosophy or dogma to replace the words of Messiah in our lives. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God is either true or it's a shocking blasphemy. To many who heard Jesus in the synagogues, at the Galilee seashore, on the hillsides, and even in the temple, his words provoked extreme reactions. Some simply believed and others could only pick up heavy stones to throw at him. They couldn't argue against his power and authority. Their only recourse was to believe or eliminate him. Jesus knew their hearts and even taught a parable about this tragic rejection. The parable is found in Luke 20, the parable of the owner of a vineyard. He planted a crop and he went away for a long time at harvest time. He sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. Then the owner sent another servant, but they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away. This referred to the prophets, of course. And then the owner sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out. And finally, the vineyard owner said, what shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love and perhaps they'll respect him. But 
the tenants, when they saw the son, they talked the matter over and they said, this is the heir, let's kill him. And then the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Well, of course, this parable raised the blood pressure of the religious authorities. Luke adds these words, the teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Jesus pinpointed the mindset and evil of the world in that simple parable. He knew the thoughts of his enemies. And John records that after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because his fellow kinsmen were seeking to kill him. Why such hostility? It doesn't come from the image of Jesus painted in so many sermons as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There's no offense in telling people that Jesus loves them and wants to forgive their sins. If anything, street preachers today are mocked and ridiculed for declaring that God has a purpose for our lives and why don't we find out what that purpose is? Persecution of believers comes instead from a world that's told that it's evil and that it's condemned. Sinners just don't like to hear that or to be reminded of their lost state. The crowds of Jesus' time were always demanding just one more miracle. Show us a sign, they said. But even if Jesus had obliged with one more sign, one more miracle, would it have made any difference that some turned their backs on him? Do you demand a miracle or some physical sign from God before you're willing to repent and believe? We have to put ourselves in their shoes and Let's not fall into that trap. The Apostle Thomas was weak just like us, as John chapter 20 records. After the resurrection of Jesus, Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I place my hand into his wounded side, I'll never believe. But eight days later, Jesus' disciples were gathered again, and Thomas this time was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood amongst them, saying, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. And don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen me, but believed. And that applies to you right now. Jesus offers everyone who hasn't seen him, but to believe and repent, and you'll receive the new birth into the eternal kingdom of God. So I want to take the time to invite you to choose life today. When we turn our lives over into the hands of the Savior, He promises to inscribe our names in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. We have to come to the point that we recognize that we need the gift of righteousness and Jesus will give us His perfect righteousness. And His righteousness by faith will be imputed and transferred to us. Isn't that amazing? Amen. And that's the gospel. 
I want you to feel free to contact me with any questions through the social media or at our website at exploits.tv where you can sign up to receive our free color magazine exploits because we're doing the works of the Lord. A reminder also that our Jerusalem Channel app is also available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, I'm Christine Darg, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom and Maranatha.